Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Money and me on your money, only on Money FM 89.3. Welcome to Money and Me, the post-Halloween edition. There is no shortage of reasons for investors to be spooked around this time of year. Stocks have been suffering a miserable October. The S&P 500 down by about 2.9% for October, pacing towards its third negative month in a row. It would be the longest losing streak since the start of the pandemic back in 2020. The Dow ended the month 1.2% lower. The Nasdaq Composite closed 3.4% lower. Despite Monday's market rally, CNN's Fear and Greed Index that tracks seven indicators of market sentiments in the United States remained in the fear zone. But now that we're on to the last two months of this year, are there any things in particular that is creeping out investors? We turn our attention to the AI space as well. After news of an open AI early backer is sending out signals that are spooking investors about most AI startups are most overvalued and will most fail to make money. Breaking it all down for us this morning is Arun Pai from the investments team at Monks Hill Ventures. Good morning, Arun. Um, Halloween just behind us, Arun. What is spooking you about markets today? <laughs> Where do I begin? <laughs> well, <laughs> let's see. You know, uh, maybe categorizing this into two parts, right? Macro and micro. Uh, on the macro side, while inflation is not as bad as it was beginning of the year, it's still a lot higher than what central bank uh, chiefs are yielding as their comfort zone level, right? So that's something that I think investors have to be wary of. Number two, uh, U.S.-China trade wars. I think we've been speaking about that on your show for the last, I think, two, three years. Yeah. And I was actually just checking the uh, presidential odds of who's going to win uh, the U.S. elections next year. And what do you know? Trump is in the lead. So uh, this is not going to go anywhere. Mm. <laughs> this is not going to go away anytime soon, right? And last but not least, on a more sad note, the geopolitical risk, right? I mean, there are two major hotspots. I was reading the news on how yesterday was one of the worst incursions by uh, Russia on a whole number of different uh, Ukrainian villages. And obviously, we have the uh, disaster that's uh, ongoing in uh, the whole Israel versus Hamas-Palestinian war situation over there. So that, that, that's mostly on the negative side. On the micro side, Things are not looking that bleak. I think some sectors are obviously coming off the nice uh, tailwinds that they received during the COVID times with the whole many companies spending a lot of money on digitization. We saw uh, software companies, especially like on the, like SaaS companies, multiples uh, increasing substantially with a lot of revenue growth. But overall, so that's on the positive side. Overall valuation, I don't think they're like at nosebleed levels just yet. But uh, sticking to your Halloween theme for the show, I definitely don't feel like a kid going out trick-or-treating either, right? It's not like there are a whole bunch of different opportunities out there in the stock market where you can just go and like start buying uh, multiple shares, multiple different businesses. I, I think there's still a lot of work for companies to do to grow into their current valuations. I think the S&P is valued at about 24, 25 price to earnings multiple. And then when you have cost of capital, which is not zero anymore as it has been for the past 15 years, 
growing into those valuations, uh, it is going to be an uphill task for many companies. Not impossible, but difficult. So putting it all together, I think uh, there are many reasons to be fearful for. Valuations are probably not the most attractive at the moment. Uh, So taking a little bit of a cautious approach. Yeah, you sound cautious. I remember we did a show once and you scared us all towards the end. It was, you know, a really bleak vision. I can't remember when this was, Uh, maybe two years ago. Yeah, I remember that very vividly. But you sound very measured this time around. I mean, when you look at the Fed meeting, interest rates unchanged for a second straight time, um, still sounding... I mean, how are you feeling about this so-called pivot? Yeah, I, I think a couple of years ago, like my biggest concern was the Fed not realizing how bad inflation can uh, bite the economy mm. and literally uh, you know, bring things to a standstill. This is right after, like during COVID times, where uh, obviously SMEs who are getting affected the most, truckloads of capital, like billions, hundreds of billions of dollars were pumped into the economy. And inflation was going to eventually rear its ugly head. To be honest, it's not panned out nowhere nearly as bad as I thought. Uh, I think uh, we all, like as citizens of the globe, kind of got lucky from that perspective, where in spite of central banks having increased rate to like 20, 25 year old highs at a very rapid rate, the overall like slowdown of the economy has been quite measured. And I think that's in large part thanks to the strength of the US economy and, you know, the consumers over there. So that's been a, a good steady uh, state. Hence, from that perspective, when I'm sitting over here right now, look, interest rates are not zero. I think the central banks have really gotten their act together pretty much globally. Uh, they've ensured that uh, we're not going to let inflation get out of control, which would have been the doomsday scenario. Uh, stagflation doesn't seem to be on the horizon. Uh, there is still underlying, I mean, yesterday, the Fed kept uh, interest rates on pause yet again, and they came out with this statement where, look, while we are concerned about the economic growth, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, while we are concerned about the U.S., uh, the underlying economic growth, it's not something that are, uh, that's like flashing uh, red sirens just yet. So, in a, in a more cautious approach right now, waiting to see what more data points come out. I don't think it's crazy attractive valuations where I'll be going in like 100% into stock, uh, but at the same time, there are, you know, various gray cl- dark gray clouds in the horizon, I would say. So taking a more cautious approach would be the fair way to put it. Interesting. So we wanted to do this because we're just out of October and the 10 month of the year sees some uh, economists and investment managers nervously checking over their shoulders. October known for some of the scariest events like the stock market crash of 1929 investors. Remember that? Heralded the Great Depression and then Black Monday, October 19th. Still October 1987, that was when the stock market fell more than 20% in a single day. I hope I'm spooking you all out appropriately. (laughs) So October 2023 didn't quite live up to those expectations, right? It was just, you know, another month. (laughs) And thank God for that, right? (laughs) I mean, we really don't want our portfolios down 20% in a single day right towards the end of the year with Christmas coming up. uh, Fair point, fair point. Uh, So what are the greatest things that we, what are the greatest risks, I suppose, in the market as you see now? I feel the biggest risk, in my opinion, is like twofold. One is if inflation, while it seems to have kind of petered down to anywhere between the 3 to 4% like headline mark. The big concern is, given these geopolitical risks, given the U.S.-China trade war, if supply chains keep getting dislocated, the underlying cost of production of goods continuously increase, and inflation starts rearing its ugly head again, right? I, I think that's the biggest risk, because at that point of time, 
central banks across the globe will have no choice but to really slam down on the brakes, which basically means increasing interest rates substantially higher. And this will take us back to like what, you know, uh, Walker did back in the Fed in like uh, the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, where interest rates had to like literally go up into like double digits. That I think would be the absolute doomsday scenario, right? Again, to be very clear, I don't think that that's going to happen. There are no data points that are substantiating that just yet. But uh, look, we are living in very uncertain times at the moment, right? So uh, from a pure uh, putting on my risk hat purely, I think that's something that can really cripple the economy. Other than that, mm-hmm. other than that, I think things are going relatively quite stable. I mean, some companies are doing well. You can see, you know, of all the earnings reports that have been coming out, be it from big tech, short, and it might not be gangbuster earnings like what we saw during COVID times, but they are still very healthy. Some industries kind of went through a peak. I mean, EVs especially, we've seen a, a decent healthy correction in that space. Things had gotten a bit out of control, I felt. Uh, growth rates have slowed down. Valuations have come off. So yeah, so overall, uh, relatively uh, cautious, yet uh, in the long run, optimistic. I would say. All right. I'm still going to try to pop uh, apocalyptic Arun and hope he comes out <laughs> at some point. And if there is a topic that brings out the uh, you know sense of doom, it is... What will AI bring us, utopia or dystopia? <laughs> and what is a venture capitalist pick? Well, uh, Vinod Kosla is an AI early backer and he's known for his investments in the field. And he was speaking to a newspaper at a recent tech conference. And while everybody is frothing of, uh, you know, excited about the AI success story, he says it is an overvalued sector um, and that most venture investments will lose money when we look at investing in AI. Do you agree, Arun? <laughs> Let me put it this way, right? I, I don't want to go against Vinod Kosla, obviously. But I, I think setting the stage for your listeners about what venture capital is important, right? Okay. So mm-hmm. venture capital is very, very different from like value investing or traditional equity investing, uh, primarily because the power law is it plays a very strong role in how our returns are dictated. What do I mean by the power law? It means that basically most of your return of your fund will basically come from a very, very few select winners, especially in early stage investing. I mean, there are rough, like there are rough average statistics out there, which basically says there's like 10 companies that are invested in by an early stage venture capital fund. There'll be one company out of that, so literally like 10%, give or take, will hopefully be your big outlier, which means it'll return anywhere between like two to three to four times the return of the fund, by the way, not just the return on the underlying company investment, but it'll be the return of the fund. Three or four will hopefully kind of give your money back. So any amount of money that you've deployed into the capital, into the startup, you literally just get it back. And like five or six companies will literally go bankrupt. That's the risk that we as venture capitalists are hoping to underwrite. So returns are basically heavily skewed towards identifying that one winner. Mm. And, you know, like while that that, that plays a massive role in venture capital, uh, there's this really interesting podcast uh, called Acquired uh, in which Charlie Munger just spoke. And uh, Charlie Munger obviously being Warren's right-hand man. And he was coming up with this, he came up with the statistic that most of Berkshire Hathaway's returns have come from under 10 investment decisions. Now, just imagine that. The, the guy, I think, is going to turn... Uh, 
100 years old in like two months. So he's gone through about like 70, 75, 80 years of investing. And basically what he's saying is, and then most of his time was spent with uh, Berkshire, right? With uh, Warren. Mm -hmm. And he's basically saying that they have, I mean, of, of all the intellect, of all the smarts and brilliance and blah, blah, blah of these two guys and the world's greatest investors, they've literally made on average one good investment decision every seven or eight years, which has led to 99% of the returns of Berkshire. Even in the public market space, if you're taking a, you know, a, a value, a true value investing or just a general like investing approach where you're thinking long term, most of your returns will come from very few select investments that you have high conviction in. You've been able to take a substantial equity ownership position, which is the case of venture capital or in the case of, you know, public market investors of a percentage of your portfolio that you're willing to deploy into the market. You've made certain very concentrated bets, having very deep sector industry knowledge about the business. Now, coming back to, uh, so putting that as a context, coming back to artificial intelligence being overvalued, uh, I 100% agree with what North Coast was saying, right? Absolutely. It's the new shiny toy that basically everyone wants to get their hands on. And hence, a lot of capital has, uh, who, a lot of capital has been raised by venture capital funds, which in turn have been deployed into uh, this new quote-unquote hot vertical. But do I believe that it's fundamentally going to revamp the way uh, we are doing things at present? I, I genuinely do believe so. In a positive manner, will we hence see some trillion dollar companies like the new Amazons, Apple, Googles coming out of this? I would also say yes. And hence, if you put all of that together with my uh, previous rambling, <laughs> you just need to get basically involved in one or even hopefully, like if you can miraculously do of these, with a good ownership percentage, and you'll have some amazing results. Mm, now I get it. I see all the strands coming together. Okay, okay, got it. That's quite brilliant, really, as always. So you agree with Kosla broadly, and you've, you've sort of tapered it down for our investor listeners in terms of what this means for them. Uh, Kosla says, what, what, what are you seeing in terms of valuations out there in the market? I mean, are they really soaring this year for AI companies and their rivals? They are. And, and, and along with that comes a whole bunch of, uh, you know, the, the, the charlatans in the space, right? Mm -hmm. Where if you look at any startup pitch deck, uh, everything will be like generative AI this, generative AI that, trying to piggyback off of the investor attention that especially OpenAI and a whole bunch of other generative AI companies have received. So I think it's two different worlds, uh, at least in the space that I'm playing in, which is early stage investing. Yeah. If you are in the non-AI space, like a non-AI startup, uh, valuations have had a very healthy correction. Uh, you know, everyone talks about this being a funding winter and the amount of capital that VCs have been able to raise has been a lot lower. The amount of capital that startups have been able to raise are a lot lower. Valuations are down 30, 40%, et cetera, et cetera. But that's only if you're taking, if you're having this, you're, you're looking at this from the length of what happened, well, not last year, but from 2021 to 2022, right? Mm -hmm. I would say that those were the outliers. If you kind of look and it's a very nascent ecosystem still, the startup ecosystem in Southeast Asia. If you kind of look at what the average is over the last like five, six years, excluding 2020, 2021, we are kind of back to the average. Hmm. So rather than comparing the right now to only the last 
year. I think taking a slightly more longer term approach or view into this kind of shows us that valuations have had a healthy correction. Things were a little bit out of control during not the first couple of months of COVID, but after that. Mm. In the generative AI space or in the AI space in general, uh, valuations are still quite elevated, especially in Silicon Valley. I think that kind of deep tech talent is still at a much more nascent stage in Southeast Asia. So uh, it's not like we're seeing those crazy you know, uh, here's a pitch deck valuation of $100 million just because you worked at Google for the last five years, kind of startups, which those stories are coming out of Silicon Valley right now. So I think, you know, we're kind of seeing like elevated, but not the craziness that typically takes place in Silicon Valley just yet in Southeast Asia. Uh, But yeah, that's the overall uh, lay of the land, I would say. Okay, depending on how you see this next question, you might think that this is a great investor question or that, wow, these are two big themes and we we need a whole show for this, but I'm going to Try it anyway. Do you see a parallel between this year's AI hype, Arun, and last year's flurry of cryptocurrency investment-related activity? No, no. <laughs> you, you know my views on crypto and uh, <laughs> that underlying technology, uh, Michelle. Like, I'm a skeptic when it comes to, maybe it's my traditional mindset of being in, Finance, coming from an investment banking background, exactly, mm-hmm. for 10 years, being in the fintech startup ecosystem where or, or both, you know, my, the startups that I was part of were properly regulated by the central bank. I think it's a massively uphill battle when you're trying to do something related to payment that is not heavily regulated. I think there are a few players, and I, and I love the fact that the evolution of the industry has taken place. I think there are a few players that are actively trying to work with regulators to ensure that uh, they are under the umbrella. It's, you know, the, the the underlying technology or infrastructure is not just a conduit for nefarious activities, you know, and, you know, anyone can Google any of this and there's a whole bunch of characters that are loving the use of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies to illegally transfer money out of countries. Are there some certain relevant, interesting and good use cases, uh, potentially? So as an optimist, as a tech optimist, I, I genuinely hope the industry will evolve and mature, work with central banks a lot more closely, uh, work with regulators a lot more closely to ensure that their solution can truly be distributed to the masses in a uh, legal manner. Which So, so that's in the crypto space. Right. On the AI space, uh, you know, as, as I was saying previously, I, I don't think this is just a feature. I, I genuinely feel that there will be a fundamental change in the way we do things. Mm. We are extremely early, right? It is still very, very early days. There will be a whole bunch of crashes. The media will, you know, put these up in headlines saying, oh, XYZ startup, XYZ company raised $100 billion, uh, has gone bankrupt. Uh, this is the end of the sector, etc. But again, remember the power law, right? As a venture capital fund, we only need like one or two of these to be truly successful. That'll more than make up for the return. So from that perspective, I'm actually very optimistic. I think the productivity enhancements that this technology is going to bring to the way we live our lives are just mind-boggling. So you know, like I, I've basically told my uh, two-year-old daughter, you either become an engineer or become a professional golfer, right? Because <laughs> I genuinely don't think there are going to be too many <laughs> avenues or ways to uh, be able to build a true career in your future. <laughs> Clearly, you prize 
golf skills. Right. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I, I think I think there will always be a market for professional sports where people like us and God bless UBI, which I hopefully will, hopefully do think it's going to come out in the future. Let the robots do the work. We'll be watching sports and we will pay good money to humans <laughs> to <laughs> excel their level of capability. I'm surprised uh, I didn't tell your two-year-old to go into venture capitalism. Do you share Charlie Munger's um, he's quite famous for, uh, let's say, his dislike for venture capitalists. <laughs> I remember this line. In 2014, he said it would be better for venture capital funds to light their money on fire with an acetylene torch than invest in Internet startups. <laughs> my views on this are, and I think this is common to money management actually across the board, hmm. right? If you look at even public market investing, the majority of public market investors, like professional public money market investors, do not beat the index, right? Hmm. Just imagine that. The, the, the trillions of dollars that are being managed by supposedly extremely smart people who get paid truckloads of fees are not able to beat just the index, which is why you as a retail investor or as even like a very savvy investor, just taking the money and just deploying it into an index fund is probably the best return that you can hope to achieve. Now, that being said, there are a few uh, very select managers out there. Uh, Obviously, people in the US, being in the public space or venture capital space have got much longer track records Mm -hmm. and they can prove that they are true outliers, like true geniuses to be able to beat the market consistently year over year across many decades. I think talking about venture capital, specifically in Southeast Asia, it is still at a very early nascent stage. And there are some underlying benefits that you have mm. of being in the private market space, of being, you know, the gift of the seat where you have asymmetry of information, which can potentially enable you to yield market-beating returns. So I think it's still early. I don't think the scorecard is out just yet where oh, wow, venture capital, Southeast Asia is definitely the place to allocate capital. Uh, but there are certain green shoots already. So that's the hope, right? As an eternal optimist, uh, you've got to have hope and uh, uh, see how things go. I was hoping he'd scare us about markets, but as you just heard, he's ending on an eternally optimistic note. Arun <laughs> Pai, we appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot for having me as always, Michelle. From the investments team at Monk's Hill Ventures, the amazing Arun Pai. I'm Michelle Martin. Thank you so much for joining us here on Money and Me. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.